Welcome to Frontlines, a weekly podcast produced by Legion Magazine, Canada's leading military history publication. Join us for stories and commentary on Canada's rich military past and present. I'm Stephen J. Thorne, and today we look at the whys and wherefores of the war in Afghanistan, which ended almost two decades after it began in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. The Graveyard of Empires appears to have claimed another victim. But why couldn't a high-powered coalition that included the United States, United Kingdom, and Canada defeat a radically fundamentalist group of murderous zealots? Many said from the beginning that the post-9-11 invaders of Afghanistan were doomed to follow the Persians, Greeks, Arabs, Turks, Mongols, Britons three times, and Soviets, none of whom managed a permanent presence or far-reaching impact in the parched, and willfully independent land of deserts, mountains, and open plains. A successful campaign of liberation relies as much on winning hearts and minds as it does on strategic military successes. Winning over Afghans, as the ultimate collapse of their national army suggests, was far easier said than done. There are 14 ethnic groups in this landlocked country. Virtually none of them get along. 40% are Pashtuns who rule the southern half of the country with impunity and formed the Taliban in their ancestral home of Kandahar. Afghanistan was once a waypoint on the Silk Road. Cities like Balkh, now a village of ancient ruins near Mazari Sharif in the north, once teemed with activity. Their caravanserais, combined inns, bazaars, and service centers, a focal point of trade and commerce. But Afghanistan has long since been left behind. The skills Afghans developed servicing the caravans that once passed through it are now adapted to keeping the country's aging fleet of predominantly yellow Toyotas on the road. Abandoned shipping containers line streets in Kabul and Kandahar, serving as makeshift shops and workshops where young boys use their nimble hands to fashion automotive parts. The country is dirt poor and undeveloped, yet it is rich in untapped minerals, an estimated $1 trillion worth of lithium, gold, iron, copper, and gems lie under the surface undisturbed. They are now attracting the attention of China and others, anxious to exploit a growing global reliance on rare earth metals produce consumer technology, efficient batteries, advanced military hardware, and sophisticated computer chipsets. It's hard to imagine that ever happening under a Taliban regime. The country has no railway, there are no ports, its highway system is marginal at best, there are three airports of consequence, there are roving bands of glorified bullies looking to profit from other people's misfortune, and then there is war. Afghanistan is a warrior society. In many ways, it is still stuck in some century long ago. As much as Kabul is considered the center of power, the rugged and disparate country is still dominated by warlords, each of whom controls their own districts with the muscle of their private militias. They are skilled fighters, they know the terrain, and famously, they know how to use it. Not long after Kabul fell on August 15th, local militias retook districts in the northern province of Baglan, 
Taliban forces won them back by August 23rd. Taliban also gained control over several districts close to the Panjshir Valley, where forces loyal to Ahmad Massoud, son of the late Mujahideen commander Ahmad Shah Massoud, were holding their own, at least for a while. But in the greater scheme of things, there is little sense of country or nationality as we know it. Outside of Kabul, a large proportion of the population is uneducated, isolated, and unworldly. They can be swayed, or they can be shrewd, and many Afghans, particularly in positions of local power, played both sides masterfully throughout the 20 years the NATO coalition tried to win them over. Afghans are in their sixth straight decade of war, and everywhere people are simply tired, battered, and beaten. Large numbers concern themselves only with securing food and water to live another day. 9-11 notwithstanding, they did not start this war. The West did. And the West did not go to Afghanistan to nation-build. It went there to kill terrorists and eradicate al-Qaeda resources, the facilities where they trained, the poppy crops that financed their operations, the people who let them in, etc. It was never going to work. Loyalties were suspect. Corruption was rampant. One can only imagine why national police withheld poppy eradication programs until after the annual harvests, going in with long sticks and lopping the heads off plants that had already been milked of their coveted opium, sometimes the day after the last of the potent liquid-turned paste had been scooped from their billiard-ball-sized bulbs. As far as the coalition was concerned, Poppy eradication was a no-win proposition. It's tough, after all, to win hearts and minds when you're denying farmers a crop that has at least 26 times the yield of the alternative, wheat. The government was always corrupt. Rank-and-file soldiers and law enforcement were underpaid or often went without compensation for long periods. They were at or near the bottom of the totem pole left to skim the dregs after various levels of leadership, some of them little more than thugs who seized on opportunity, helped themselves. Police would resort to setting up impromptu checkpoints, usually at night, where they would collect money from drivers and passers-by in return for passage. The practice didn't exactly engender trust or respect in national institutions. The perceptions were only reinforced when Afghan President Ashraf Ghani fled the country August 15th with four cars and a helicopter full of cash. He reportedly had to leave some money behind because it wouldn't fit in the aircraft. The Taliban had the momentum, the weapons, the patience, the wisdom, and the resources to finish this. They knew how it would end all along, and so did many of our troops who now mourn the plight of interpreters and other locally employed civilians left to face harsh retribution from an unforgiving enemy. Armchair quarterbacks point to the collapse of the Afghan National Army with contempt and disdain. They have no idea of the sacrifices and suffering Afghans have endured over the past 42 years since the costly Soviet invasion of 1979. Since 9-11 alone, 75,000 Afghan military and police officers have been killed as a direct result of the war, along with an estimated 71,334 civilians, Fortune magazine reported on August 19th. 
More than 3,500 coalition troops, including at least 158 Canadians, died on Afghan soil in the past two decades. For the Taliban, lives were cheap. It absorbed tens of thousands of deaths while it bided its time planting bombs, inflicting casualties, and building a new technologically advanced army that is now using biometrics to identify people who worked with the International Security Assistance Force and the international community. The U.S. Government Accountability Office estimates the Taliban inherited $85 billion U.S. worth of American military hardware, including 22,174 Humvees, 42,000 pickup trucks and SUVs, 358,530 assault rifles, 126,295 pistols, and 64,363 machine guns. There are 8,000 trucks for the taking, 634 M1117 armored vehicles, 169 armored personnel carriers, 155 mineproof vehicles, and 162,043 radios. The evacuation process, long anticipated, seemed an afterthought to the government in Ottawa. It was excruciating weeks after the unfolding scenario became evident that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, already on the campaign trail for the September 20th federal election, gave the military the green light to begin taking out so-called Canadian entitled persons. Entitled, all right. As it happened, of the 3,700 people Canada is estimated to have evacuated, fewer than 15% who went out aboard Canadian Globemaster aircraft are said to have been interpreters or locally employed civilians. Vast numbers never received the visas they've been promised. An agonizingly long and complex approval process handicapped many who were contending with spotty internet access, call services, and power. Indeed, it all came a day late and a dollar short for most. A heartbreaking end to a long war that took about 50% more Afghan civilian lives than it did coalition and Taliban combined. President Joe Biden set an arbitrary August 31st deadline for pulling out remaining U.S. troops, and on August 25th, the airport was shut down to Afghans not already inside. The rest of the NATO force went with them, almost two weeks before the previously established deadline of September 11th. Stranded in Kabul and outlying areas, there is legitimate concern that many fixers, interpreters, and others who work for the Canadians will be killed, and not efficiently. The Taliban have a penchant for inflicting brutal, torturous death on essentially innocent people. It is profoundly disheartening to many Canadian soldiers, journalists, diplomats, and aid workers that the government of Canada turned its back on so many of those who risked their lives to assist its efforts in a land so far away, yet so close. You have been listening to Frontlines. I'm Stephen J. Thorne. For this and other stories, visit legionmagazine.com frontlines. For more military history, subscribe to Legion Magazine at legionmagazine.com.